Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. As I've mentioned the last few weeks, Luke has been developing two themes in particular in the last couple of chapters. We have witnessed Jesus' revelation of his power and authority, revealing that he is indeed the Son of God, the Christ of God. We've also encountered a number of responses to Jesus' power and authority. And up until chapter 9, in in, in the realm of Jesus' Galilean ministry, we have not encountered a confession that truly acknowledges Jesus as the Christ of God. Until last week, when Peter confessed that Jesus is indeed the Anointed One, the Christ of God, we began to have some resolution to the tension of of both Jesus' revelation of his power and authority and the responses of the people. Well, today we get further resolution as God confirms that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the Son of God as he speaks to Peter, James, and John from from the cloud. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. All words are not created equal. We all selectively choose what we want to pay attention to, and heed and, and those words which, which we don't. And one big determiner, factor, in whether we will listen to someone's words and heed them and whether we will not listen and heed their words is the identity of that person. For instance, in your workplace, if, if someone who is subordinate to you 
tells you to do something, you may view that differently than if it's your superior. Boys and girls, if your younger sibling tells you to do something, you may view that differently than if your mom or dad tells you to do something. If someone who has a reputation of being dishonest says something to you, you may disregard their words. Conversely, if someone whom you deeply respect speaks to you, gives you advice and counsel, you're probably hanging upon their every word. This is a basic principle that I think we see played out in our ordinary life all the time. The identity of a person, that is their, their virtue, their character, their reputation, their authority, influences the power of their words. Influences whether we will pay attention and heed their words or not. Well, Luke here in this passage is making a similar point. He's wanting us to know that Jesus demands our ear because of who he is. Jesus demands our ear because of who he is. You see this explicitly in verse 35. God's declaration from this cloud where he says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus demands our ear because of who he is. This evening, then, I'd like us to briefly consider both the identity of Jesus and this imperative, this command that we are to listen to Jesus. And the identity of Jesus serves as the ground, the basis for this imperative. So first, let us let's consider the identity of Jesus that Luke puts forth here in, in this passage. Well, this passage before us gives us many, many clues as to the identity of Jesus. You'll notice that this passage begins with Jesus going up on top of this mountain with Peter, James, and, and John. And throughout Scripture, mountains are associated, as we witness in the call to worship. Mountains are associated with the very presence of God, the place of God's revelation. And they're on top of this mountain, and, and Jesus, shortly thereafter, becomes transfigured. His glory shines forth in his face, and his garments. Moses and Eliza shine, uh, appear in all their glory as well. Then towards the end of the passage, a cloud envelopes them. And out of this cloud, God himself speaks to the disciples. And clouds also are associated with the presence of God. Think of Israel's time in the wilderness. God's presence took the form of a cloud. Genesis 1, we, we learn that the Spirit of God was hovering like a cloud over that which was formless and void. No doubt, there are many, many clues, much imagery that's, that's going on in this passage. But I'd like us to focus our attention, or you could even say summarize these, these clues that Luke presents uh, before us. To this. Jesus is presented as the greater Moses who's accomplishing a new exodus. Jesus is presented as the greater Moses who is accomplishing a new exodus. That's, that's I think, the, the central identity that's being presented in this text. 
Now, what do I mean by the greater Moses? Remember our, our, our reading of the law, Deuteronomy 18. Moses says that God will one day raise up a prophet like Moses, and God's people are to listen to him. Well, in this transfiguration, there's clearly a connection between Jesus and Moses as they both are on top of this mountain in this glorified or pre-glorified state. But then God speaks forth from this cloud and says, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. It's as if God is saying, I'm fulfilling Deuteronomy 18. I have raised up a prophet like unto Moses in the form of Jesus Christ. And you are to give him your ear. Jesus is the greater Moses. What do I mean by Jesus came to this earth to accomplish a new exodus? If you look at verse 31, in verse 31 we read that Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're speaking. And they're speaking about Jesus' departure. Now in the original language, in uh, in the Greek of this passage, This word for departure is actually exodon. They're speaking of Jesus' exodus. And if we continue to read in verse 31, it's his exodus that he is about to fulfill or accomplish. Jesus came to this earth to accomplish or fulfill a new exodus. So Jesus is the greater Moses who's accomplishing a new and better exodus. Well, if that's the case, it begs the question, what was the original exodus? As you may know, the original exodus was, uh, occurred when Israel was in bondage. In, uh, there were slaves in Egypt. This period of Israel's history in Egypt is uh, spoke of, uh, spoken of elsewhere in Scripture as representing every human being's bondage to to sin, being under the tyranny of the devil. But then God, through Moses, miraculously delivers Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're taken into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, but the people of God are not able to go to the top of Mount Sinai. Only Moses, as their mediator, is able to do that. But Moses isn't able to bring Israel into the promised land because of his disobedience. And so then through Joshua, the people of God enter into this land of Canaan, the promised land. They come to Jerusalem. Under Solomon, the temple is is constructed. The Ark of the Covenant is brought. And they are at the foothills of Mount Zion. And this Exodus event was etched into the Hebrew mind. For us today as Christians, no matter what uh, stripe of Christianity one comes from, almost everyone thinks of God's salvation and redemption in terms of the cross. The cross is, is some, in some sense etched upon our minds. Well, for the Hebrews, it was the Exodus. That's how they thought of God's salvation and redemption. Hebrew parents were called to catechize their kids and, and God's past faithfulness to them. They remembered this event annually in the Passover. Furthermore, as I've alluded to, or as I alluded to in in the call to worship, Scripture portrays salvation sometimes 
with the imagery of ascending a mountain. Who shall ascend the holy hill or the holy mountain of God? And when we think of the Exodus in terms of this imagery, there's, there's much explanatory power. So Egypt literally resided in the lowlands. It was low elevation. And God, through Moses, brought the people of Israel into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, higher elevation than that of Egypt. But they eventually were brought into the land of Canaan, to Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And so they go from the lowlands of Egypt, literally to the heights of Mount Zion. But then as we know, they're, they're exiled, they're brought out of God's holy land by the Babylonians. In Isaiah 14, we read that the king of Babylon, notice what he says in his arrogance, as he defies God. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He thinks he can ascend the holy hill of God by his own merits and strength. Well, this foreshadows for us Jesus' new exodus. Jesus literally comes down to this earth. He's born under the law. He, he comes to Egypt, as it were. He lives a life under the common curse. He experiences the common infirmities that every other human being who lives in a fallen world has to experience. He lives a perfect life. He, he suffers that perfect death. Only to rise and ascend to heaven. That is to say, he was alone able to ascend Mount Zion, the holy hill of the Lord. Because he had clean hands and a pure heart. He was the only one who, who was able to earn bodily life after the grave, to enter God's eternal Sabbath rest. He came down so that he might ascend back up into God's dwelling place. In this passage, we see Jesus in a glorified state on top of a mountain. It's foreshadowing for us that period of exaltation that Jesus will experience after his earthly ministry as he ascends, summits God's holy mountain. And this is good news for us because we know that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is that member of the Trinity who enacts this bond, this irrevocable bond between us and Christ, union with Christ. And what this bond means is that whatever has happened to Christ will happen to us. If Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. But it also means that where Christ is, we will one day be. One pastor once described it, it this way. He, he used the imagery of a train. You know, whatever, whatever happens to the front car will happen to the caboose. It's just a matter of time. And so if Christ as our head is on the top of God's mountain, though we are not there, we will one day be there because we are connected to our head. That's what we confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism about Christ's ascension. That we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ as our head will also take us as members up to himself. Where Christ is, we shall one day be. If Christ 
is glorified on the top of the mountain, that's our destiny. That's where we're going to. And this is the narrative that we are to look to, to explain the past, to give meaning uh, to the present, to, to give us hope for the future. You know, everyone, whether they're conscious or unconscious, looks to some sort of narrative to do these three things. Think about much of our, our, our cultural and political discourse today. It's, it's over competing narratives, narratives that, that explain the past, narratives that give meaning to the present, and narratives that orientate us or point us to a certain goal or hope for the future. And this is our narrative as Christians. Christ came down only to summit and ascend God's holy hill and reserve a place for us in that new creation. This is what gives us stability in the midst of unstable times. This is good news. Good news for uh, for us. Jesus is the greater Moses, the one who has come to this earth to, to bring about this new and better exodus. So he leaves this earth to summit God's holy mountain for us and for our salvation. Well, no doubt this passage speaks of, of other identities that Jesus has. Uh, we see that both Moses and Elijah are present, which seem to indicate also that both the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Moses as the lawgiver, Elijah as, as a prophet, the great prophet. Both the law and the prophets point to Jesus. In Luke 24, verse uh, 27, this is the narrative of, of Jesus' resurrection appearance to his disciples. His disciples are, 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 are despairing, they're sad, they're uh, full of hopelessness. Jesus has been crucified. He's buried. And Jesus appears to them. They don't know his identity. And he opens up this, the Old Testament scriptures and, and shows them how, how both the law and the prophets testify to him. You know, Peter, James, and John were there. They, sh they should have known this based on this passage, the transfiguration. We also see God identifying Jesus as his son, his chosen one. Jesus is the seed of the woman that Genesis 3.15 identified. He is the second Adam who is on the scene to accomplish this great salvation which has been foreshadowed through every page of our Old Testaments. And at the latter half of verse 35, God says we are to listen to this Jesus. We are to listen to him because of who he is the greater Moses, the one who's accomplished a new exodus, the son of God, the chosen one of God. Jesus demands our ear because of who he is. So I'd like us to briefly consider the nature of this, this command, this imperative, that we are to listen to Jesus. One thing that we see in this passage is an emphasis on the appearance of Jesus, of Moses, and Elijah, and their glory, which, which shines forth. Luke describes how their glory is something that John and Peter and James, that they saw with their eyes. 
And this does, in some sense, foreshadow the age to come when our faith will give way to sight. When we will be able to see in this explicit, consummated form the very glory of Christ shining forth. But we see God saying we are to listen. Listen to Jesus. Not that we should expect to always see Jesus in this glorified state, but we are to listen to Jesus. It tells us that this age, this age between the two advents of Christ, is an age of listening, not an age of seeing. Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. When it comes to faith, faith is governed by our ears, not our eyes. Think of someone who, who, who is blind. Their ears play a very important role in, in just operating through a daily life. And not walking into dangerous position, uh, situations. As Christians, our ears are to give us direction. That is to say, the word of God is meant to give us direction. Not what we see in our, with our eyes and our circumstances. But what we, what we hear with our ears and God's word. That's why Luther said that the ears are the organ of the Christian. We are to listen. Listen to Jesus. So this age is an age of listening, of hearing, reading the word of God. That's what our faith is attached to. Well, what are we to be listening for? This age is an age of listening. We are called to listen to Jesus. But this command is quite general and unspecific, isn't it? Listen to him. Well, in the context of chapter 9, Jesus wants us to be listening to his mission. That is to say, the gospel. Remember last week, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one of God. And then Jesus responds and says, Okay, Peter, you confess me to be the Christ, the anointed one? Well, that means that I'm the, the Christ of the cross and the resurrection. I came to this earth not to give you political freedom, victory over the Romans, not even to temporarily heal people's bodies, but I came to suffer, to die and to rise from the dead. He wants his disciples to get his mission, to get the gospel. We see in this passage, he's foreshadowing for his disciples What's to come? His, his reign of exaltation when he will ascend to God's holy mountain. In a couple passages from now, he'll, he'll tell his disciples, let this sink into your ears, he says. I came to this earth to suffer, to be handed over to the leaders of this age. He wants his disciples to get his mission. Why he came to this earth? Of course, the disciples don't fully grasp this until after Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes down upon them. And though we today may not struggle as the disciples struggled during Jesus' earthly mission to comprehend the mission of Jesus, it's very easy for us to have mission drift, to begin building upon a different foundation, to lose sight of the specific, uh, uh, the specific nature of, of this mission. So we, we need to be listening. Even as believers, we need to be listening to the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, he's writing to 
this church in Rome, he, he tells them in the opening introduction, he tells them that he is eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome, to those who are saints, to believers, which means that we, we need to be continuing to hear the gospel as believers. Why? Because the gospel is where we find our identity in this life, our meaning, our worth. And whatever we, we look to to fill this void, void of our identity, our meaning, our worth, if it's not the gospel, it's going to be something else. It might be one, your health, wealth, your career, family, talents, abilities, whatever it is, Whatever it is that's filling that void, you are going to be living for that, slavishly. That is not the path of freedom. But when you fully allow the gospel to soak into your bloodstream, your DNA, as it were, and recognize that your identity before God is not conditioned upon anything that you do or that's intrinsic in you, but completely conditioned upon another, someone outside of you, that's true freedom. That's when you are free to truly love God and love your neighbor. That's why we need to continue to hear this gospel. It is that, that motivation to love God and love our neighbor. We're also called to listen to the law. I mentioned this last week, but part of, of Jesus instructing his disciples on the contours of his mission that he came to this earth to suffer, to die, to rise from the dead, is not only to teach them about what he's accomplishing uniquely as the second Adam for them, but also to pattern what is to pattern their lives. What is to pattern every disciple of Jesus. That is to say, we all are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus. Humiliation before exaltation. Suffering and death before glory. That's the pattern that Jesus gives us. That's the pattern he wants his disciples to get. Again, we'll see in, uh, later on in chapter 9 that they struggle to understand this as they are, are arguing among themselves who is the greatest. They want glory now. They don't want to die themselves, die to their ego, die to their preferences. So we are to listen. Listen to this pattern that Jesus has given to us. Humiliation before exaltation. Well, how are we to listen? Of course, the disciples, they, they had the benefit of literally sitting at the feet of Jesus. as They sought to listen to him. Well, that's not the case for us. So how do we listen to Jesus? And no... Jesus does not speak in our subconscious. There is no still, small voice that whispers in our ear that we are to listen to. Rather, in this age, we have the inscripturated word of God. That's how we listen to the words of, of Jesus. And this word, this inscripturated word of God, first and foremost, comes to us in moments like this, on the Lord's Day. Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the preached word of Christ. According to the New Testament, that is the central part of the Christian's piety. But it's not to say that Monday through Saturday is indifferent. 
Rather, Paul says in Colossians 3.16 that on the other days of the week, we are called to let this word of Christ dwell in us richly. And what that looks like can look different for each specific person in their own context. But nevertheless, we're called to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. The word of Christ is meant to be in us. In us in such a way that the gospel actually forms our identity. To listen to the word of Christ in such a way that God's, his law actually affects how we make decisions, patterns our life in this world. And this call to listen, this call to listen is, is a joyous call to be refreshed and reoriented. Sort of like a, a man who is dying of thirst in the, the wilderness who's called to drink. That's not a harsh command. Joyous call to be refreshed. So brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is indeed the greater Moses. The greater Moses who came to this earth to accomplish a new and better exodus. And so will you give this Jesus your ear? Let us pray.